0: Then on October 17th of that same year, the Lord sent another message to the prophet Haggai. Say this to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of God's people there in the land. Does anyone remember this house, this temple, in its former splendor? How in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. But now the Lord says, be strong. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the son of the high priest. Be strong, all you people still left in the land. And now get to work, for I am with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. My spirit remains among you, just as I promised when you came out of Egypt. So do not be afraid. But this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. In just a little while, I will again shake the heavens and the earth, the oceans and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and the treasures of all the nations will be brought to this temple. I will fill this place with glory, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. The future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and in this place I will bring peace. I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. Think about this 18th day of December, the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Think carefully. I am giving you a promise now while the seed is still in the barn. You have not yet harvested your grain and your grapevines, fig trees, pomegranates, and olive trees that have not yet produced their crops. But from this day onward, I will bless you. On that same day, December 18th, the Lord sent this second message to Haggai. Tell Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, that I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow Royal thrones and destroy the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overturn their chariots and riders. The horses will fail. The horses will fall, and their riders will kill each other. But when this happens, says the Lord of Heaven's armies, I will honor you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. I will make you like a signet ring on my finger, says the Lord, for I have chosen you. I the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. The word of the Lord.
1: Good evening, everybody. My name is Morgan, and I'm the associate pastor here. We've been in a series in the book of Haggai together. And uh, tonight, we conclude that series with chapter two. It's just a little two-week series. So if you missed last week, it's online at incarnationanglican.org slash sermons, and you can find it there. Let me pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I discovered a video of a man online who was restoring this painting that you see on the screen. The picture on the left shows what it was like before, and on the right it shows what it became afterwards. The paint was chipped and it started separating from the wood And so the restorer separated those chips from the actual painting on the panel in order to expose the bare wood. And then once he got to the raw wood, he stabilized it and he prepped it in order so that it could hold the paint again. In the places where the paint had slightly lifted from the wood in other places, he injected that void with an adhesive so that the paint would stay there. And after priming the exposed foundation, Then he took those paint chips and he applied an adhesive and was able to put those paint chips back on. With the other parts of the painting, it was pretty dirty. And so what he did, he took a lot of tests to figure out what the grime was on the surface of the painting. And then as he discovered what the actual (laughs) compound was that was the grime on the painting, he found just the right solvent in order to take off that chemical grime off the paint. And some of the spots he actually had to touch up with a little scalpel, which is really scary to do. Um, And after all of that, then there were still voids in the painting, and so he actually had to manually touch up those spots with a paintbrush. And after all of that, he even went so far as to restore the gold leafing that you see around the edge of this icon. In the video, the restorer makes this interesting comment that he does the restoring work in such a way not just to mimic what's there, but the goal is that from a few feet back, as you're looking at the image, it looks whole, it's coming together. But then as you get closer and closer to the image, you can actually see his restoration work. And that's done so that it still looks like an artifact, but as an artifact, it looks complete and it looks whole. As we think about the restoration work of God's temple... In Haggai chapter two, the people are struggling with what the restoration work is looking like. And they're asking the question, why hasn't God shown up to fill the temple with his glory yet? Last week, we introduced this little two-chapter book that was written about 520 BCE as the Persians were taking over and returning exiles from Babylon back to their homelands. Chapter one was exhorting the people to take their small acts of faith and start rebuilding the temple, that institution that God wanted to use to form his people and his community. And kids, if you have your books tonight and you have some, something to color with, you might want to think about drawing what you think that temple might have looked like. The passage today only occurs, the, the prophecy only occurs about two months after the passage that we read last week. It's about mid-October. The group seems to have gotten underway pretty quickly in the rebuilding process, and that starts to bring up new problems as they're doing this building work. First, they feel a really heavy burden on their shoulders that this temple is never going to be something worthy enough for God's glory to come down and dwell in, and that makes them tempted to give up. Second, They think that if they can just build this thing right, if they can get the structure right, then their worship will finally be good enough. But both of those beliefs stem from this idea that if I can create the right structure, the right beauty, or the right scenario, then that's gonna be good enough for God's glory to come down and fill it. It's on me. The problem is that we can't do that. And it becomes easy to forget that God is the one who builds the covenant community of faith, not us. So Haggai's encouragement to them is to keep on working in confidence in God's abilities and in confidence of God's promises. Because when things get difficult, God is only shaking off the thing that's temporary so that they can keep what is unshakable. The, temp, the, uh, the temple was being restored, and some old parts were left. They were left as artifacts, reminding the people of God's prior faithfulness. And then some parts are going to be very new, which is a picture of God's current faithfulness to them. And as you and I work together in the labor of building a congregation of worshipers, and even as we look forward to next week, when about 50 people are going to become members of incarnation, let's continue to build with confidence that God is With us. Right now, God is with us, and that every tremor or trial is a promise that God's unshakable kingdom is being revealed. And as we think about building our own embodied lives around proper worship, and that we are being formed into a temple of the Holy Spirit, let's be encouraged that God cares as much about the process and the beginning of the labor as he does with the final product. So the Lord has two, what they call theophanic visions. It's a big word. It's a theophany. God is coming in glory. It happens twice in this chapter. And God did this before. In the scriptures, you can read back when God came at Mount Sinai to give the law to Moses. And here he's using similar imagery. God is coming again. And that theophanic vision of glory is an antidote for the people to their crippling sense of nostalgia. The prophet had asked this question that was read so wonderfully. Does anybody remember this house, this temple, and its former splendor? How in comparison does that look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. The people who had been exiled were exiled nearly 70 years prior, and it's possible that some of the little kids that were taken into exile had a living memory of that first temple. Or if they didn't have a living memory, they heard about the enormities of it from their parents and from their grandparents. And so people were weeping with disappointment as they looked at the state of this second temple in light of what they knew about the first one. The greatness of the past was overshadowing their ability to press on and accept God's mercies and kindnesses in this present context. And I find that nostalgia can hold us back in several areas of life. First, our memory of church. Second, memory of family. Third, our national memory. Others as well. If we've had a particular church that set a high bar for us of excellence, where we experienced God's mercy so tangibly through others, then pining for that golden standard might keep us from seeing God's mercy right now in those around us. And it can be difficult to shake off the thought that nothing else is ever gonna be like that particular church. It can keep us from fully engaging with those who are around us right now because something's just not measuring up in our hearts. And I realize there are gonna be relational conflicts and difficulties in the church because we're frail humans in need of grace. But the danger of nostalgia is that it can lead us to a hopeless disposition where we're blind to God's mercies at present. It can happen in family. Many of us have grown up in other areas, and then we move to the D.C. metro area because of jobs or school or what have you. And then once we're here, we experience a potential wasteland of deep relationships, which is common in any urban setting. And that causes us to want to go back home or something less urban because that's where we grew up and that's where we have the best memories, where we feel the most comfortable. Recreating an often imaginary past can become this endless trail that fails to recognize all the ways that God is fashioning us right now into his dwelling place, into a temple for the Holy Spirit. Or it can show up in our national memory. I was thinking about a church experience I had a while back where somebody had written their own prayers for, during the prayers of the people and they prayed something like, Lord, make us go back to like we were 50 years ago. And I sat there horrified because all I could think about was Brown versus the Board of Education, which was about 50 years ago, where they desegregated public schools. And I thought, well, that just seems properly basic now. So what had happened is she was creating an image of the past never actually existed, because I guarantee you she wasn't thinking about that. Nostalgia, this sentimental yearning for happiness of some former place or time, it keeps us from thanking God properly for past blessings, and it shields our eyes from seeing his goodness in our present circumstances. But Haggai's vision, it sets their eyes instead on the glory of God, which breaks through the nostalgia. And it reminds us to thank God for his goodness in the past and to watch for those things that are unshakable, his mercy and his love in our current stage of life. The other threat to building is the idea that if we just build correctly, then we'll secure our righteousness or we'll be the cause of God's coming down in glory. And we didn't read verses 10 through 17, but I will summarize Haggai's argument here just for the sake of time, he, he asks the priests a question. And he says, if a person is clean, but the offering that they are offering is unclean, does the righteous person make this offering clean? Or does this offering make the righteous person unclean? Complicated question, but the answer is actually simple according to the law. An impure offering would actually make a righteous or clean person unclean in worship. So he asks this question. I'm summarizing the question. Why do you think that having a temple is automatically going to make your worship pure? God doesn't just show up and come because you have a nice temple as if that's all that it took. So as one commentator rightly points out, neither does our familiarity with the things of God's church, the Bible, sacraments, doctrine, ritual, automatically make us into pure and righteous Christians. To speak often of the Lord, to quote the scriptures, even to participate in worship and in sacrament, lend to us no magical claim to be sinless before our God and other people. His forgiveness and mercy alone make human beings acceptable in his eyes. So there's two points that I want to make about that. First is that good habits are good even when we're not fully invested mentally or emotionally in those good habits. I really like the analogy that Reverend Tish Warren gives in her book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary, when she talks about the fact that she's had tens of thousands of meals in her life, but she probably only remembers 10. But it was those tens of thousands of meals that she doesn't remember that she needed to sustain her life. And so whether worship is a memorable experience or not, It's often the obedience to just come, to come and receive God's mercy, to be open before him, to receive his grace. Those moments, whether it's memorable or not, those are the ones that sustain us, the moments where we feel the most unworthy. And so good habits are good. It's a good thing to do. But secondly, what this passage I think is addressing is that our faith and trust must be in the God who gives mercy and forgiveness not in our ability to perform ritual and ceremony or to have Bible knowledge. In some ways, it might be like this. Ashley goes off to work all day and it's supposed to be my work day as well. But instead of working, I end up staying in my pajamas all day and I have like a Netflix and chill day. And then I decide not to make dinner. And before she gets home, I change into my clothes and she walks in the door and I say, Hi, hon, I love you. How was your day? That phrase there, I love you, means absolutely nothing in that context. It's something I know that I'm supposed to say, but the actions and the intentions of my life during the day make that ritual not just meaningless, but actually kind of manipulative, as if by uttering that phrase, I've done my duty as a husband. Judah's worship is sort of like A lazy husband saying I love you to his hardworking wife after a lazy day of Netflix and chill. That attitude towards worship assumes that if we can get the system and the building to be just right, then God will show up. Maybe then God will shake the earth and he'll come down and he'll topple every foreign power. But what we've discovered in the book of Haggai is not only that God cares more about hearts than stones, but also that he is with us. And he's with us at the beginning of the labor as much as he is with us at the end of the labor. So God is focused on process, not just product. And that is really hard for us in this area to be okay with. If God needs to shake every single stone of the temple to get our attention, those things that we put our hope and faith in in a futile way, he's gonna do it. So God had brought his people out of exile from Babylon back to their homeland where the prophet Jeremiah had earlier said, I'm taking off my signet ring and I'm casting my signet ring off into exile, which was a reference to King Jehoiakim. And now in chapter two of Haggai, the prophet reveals that God is undoing that and he is putting his signet ring back on in this person of Zerubbabel. A signet ring back in those days is something that you would use as a signature on a document. It authorizes that document saying, I have signed this, I am good for it. The people were doubting that the work was going to get done. But God was saying that Zerubbabel was functionally his signature to the people Zerubbabel was born of David's lineage. He he was in Judah's royal line. And so he's remembered for generations to come as one of the heroes who saves God's people. He's listed in a book called The Wisdom of Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, which is in between the two testaments. He's also mentioned in one of the hymns for Hanukkah. And he's mentioned in the New Testament in the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. And while it seems that the prophecies that are surrounding Zerubbabel should have taken place immediately, like in the lifetime of the people who were building, they never actually did. The developments that took place for that community turned Zerubbabel from a literal fulfillment into an archetype, somebody who is pointing forward to something greater that would shake the heavens and the earth. Zerubbabel becomes refigured in the person of Jesus Christ who is both the restorer of David's line of kingship and who is God's holy temple, which Jesus calls himself in John 2. Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And the Jews say, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. In Jesus' we find both the temple of God and the peace of the nations, which heaven and earth declare as our Lord is crucified. And insofar as Jesus is greater than the temple, any challenge to living a life of faith is just a tremor making its way for God's unshakable kingdom. The writer to the the epistle to the Hebrews picks up on this idea. It's a New Testament book. And he quotes Haggai chapter two, and he says, but now he has promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order so that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So, if anything shakes today, it shakes so that the realities of God's kingdom will remain. We can endure in this work of building God's church, in building our own embodied lives as temples of the Holy Spirit by God's grace with confidence that God is faithful in the past and with hope that God is faithful in the future. Because when hardships come, God is only shaking what's temporary so that what is unshakable will still remain. Let's pray. Go before us, O Lord, in all of our doings, with your most gracious favor, and further us with your continual help, that in all our works begun, continued, and ended in you, we may glorify your holy name, and finally, through your mercy, obtain everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.